0: John chapter 2, we're in a sermon series, The Gospel According to John, and speaking into our world of darkness and deceit and confusion, John's gospel boldly declares there's only one true Savior, there's only one true Messiah, there's only one true Son of God, and it is Jesus, the way and the truth and the life. And that is something emphasized over and over again. And that forgiveness and reconciliation with God and being rescued from the coming judgment can only take place if we repent and believe in his name. That is the gospel according to John. Each of the four gospels in the original Greek text have that. It is the gospel according to Matthew or the gospel according to John. And so, in chapter 1, we saw five men who gave bold witness for Jesus. John the Baptist, mass evangelism, and then we met Andrew, the very first evangelist on a personal level, and then Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Now in chapter 2, he's going to give us, John's going to give us several snapshots, again, same focus, to get us to believe. And he's going to give us a couple snapshots of Jesus in rather everyday situations, and The purpose, again, is to lead those who don't know Christ into a saving faith with Him and His Messiah, and that by believing, they will have eternal life in His name. And John is showing us something very important, and it is this, how we respond to Jesus makes all the difference, not only in this life, but also especially in the next. So two snapshots of Jesus in this chapter we will see. First one highlights The power of Jesus, and the second one highlights the priority of Jesus. So first of all, the power of Jesus, I want to read the first three verses as we are introduced to the water into wine. Even if you're not a regular church attender, even if you don't know Christ as Savior, there are likely odds that you have heard this story because it is referenced so often in Western culture and has been for centuries. Verses 1 to 3, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. I'll show pictures in just a moment of Cana. Just It was just a little village. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples also had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. I shared in the first service that every time I come to this passage, I smile because in seminary, one of my mentors told us, he said, here's an outline you can always use for John chapter 2 in case you get stuck and you need an instant sermon. And every once in a while, preachers get asked on the spot, especially in other countries, to preach. I remember in Haiti one time, I think I shared that I walked in the door and the pastor said, I want you to preach. So here's a little sermon in case you ever get asked to do that. My mentor in seminary said, here's your outline for John chapter 2, especially the first 12 verses here. One, tragic end. That's your first point. Tragic end. The wine ran out. We'll talk about that in a minute. Tragic end. Two, timely friend. Jesus is a timely friend. And three, tasty blend. (laughs) I've never had the courage to preach it quite like that. But every time I come to this chapter and in this incident, I can't get that uh, outline out of my mind. Tragic end, timely friend, tasty blend. All right, verses 1 to 12. We have a first century wedding, which in many respects is very different than a wedding in our day. And in, especially in American culture. These are, these are big events. And this one took place in a smaller village. And this one was in Canaan. Let me show you a couple of pictures just to give you a, uh, kind of a... Geographical reference point. Cana is about 15, 16 miles from the Sea of Galilee, just north of Megiddo, would have been just a small village. If you go there today, this is what it looks like. You have hills, you have tree. It looks a lot like uh, Jerusalem. It's kind of in the beginning of the mountains there. If you go to the next photo, you'll see today, it is also there are, there are Muslims there, there are Christians there. It's a bit of a bigger area now. And you can never get away from stuff like this, which is. You've got merchants, obviously. There's signs all over the place. Uh, Buy Cana wine, where Jesus turned to water to wine, and all that kind of thing. But that gives you a little bit of a feel, what it looks like, where it's at. Back then, it would have been a small little village. The engagement period, called the betrothal period, for a couple, typically went on for anywhere from six months, could go on up to a year. It would take a divorce, actually, to break this. It was. It's more than our engagement. And then the actual wedding itself could take up to a week. These are big events, especially in a smaller area, especially where everybody knows each other. This is a celebration. The, the village, the town comes together. There are speeches. There's feasting. There's activities at the bride's house and the groom's house and back and forth to the family's homes. Becky and I have had the privilege to be in a couple wedding ceremony, not in the ceremony, but attend in Asia, one in India and one in Malaysia. And they, these are Big festive events. The one in India had over a thousand people at it. And these are times when there is a lot of celebration. Unfortunately, at this particular wedding, a major breach in etiquette occurred. And that is they ran out of wine. And especially because this is a smaller area and everybody knew each other, it's hard to overstate how in Middle Eastern culture that hospitality is a sacred duty. It still is. If you've had the privilege to have hospitality extended to you in a a Middle Eastern setting or an Asian setting or even Latin America, it is a sacred duty. And this would be a major faux pas, a major breach of etiquette. Verse 4, after being told there's no more wine, Jesus says, and I want to read this and then uh, three phrases need some explanation. Woman... Speaking to his mother, why do you involve me, Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. So three words or phrases here that need a little explanation. Number one, just the directness of woman. In the first century, this would have been a normal, polite, even respectful way to speak. So in our culture, that would be a little bit abrupt. Secondly, why do you involve me? This could be an expression of rebuke or a gentle request to be left out of something. Probably the latter. And then the most important phrase here: my hour has not yet come. Numerous places in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, Jesus is very clear. He is on a divine timetable. It comes out over and over again, meaning God's providence, and he's very aware of directing his every step. The primary reference to this is to his crucifixion. I'm going to show you a couple other verses along this line. If you turn back to chapter 7, John chapter 7. Three times in just that one chapter, there's this same reference to his time is not yet. And then it switches in chapter 12. So, chapter 7 verse 6, therefore Jesus told them, chapter 7 verse 6, my time is not yet here. Verse 8, you go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because... My time has not yet fully come. Or verse 30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Now, if you go to chapter 12 and look at verse 23, you will see a different statement. Chapter 12, verse 23 By the way, most of the Gospel of John zeroes in on Jesus' last week of his life. And so as you get into chapters 12 and 13, the night before he died, you are now transitioning to that. This is a reference to the crucifixion. In verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come or arrived for the Son of Man to be glorified. How was he glorified biblically? Through the crucifixion. And so there's this very strong prescience that he is on a divine timetable. Now back to chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5, as you read it, I want to suggest, is one of the most important things Jesus' mother ever said. And in one sense is a remarkable summary of the Christian life. Just think of it that way as I read it. His mother said to the servants, do whatever He tells you. You couldn't find a better summary of the Christian life. Do whatever He tells you. If you're discipling somebody, I hope if you're a Christian and been saved for a while, you are discipling somebody, investing into them. It's a biblical command for us who know Christ. You couldn't find a better thing to say to the person you're discipling. Just do whatever He tells you. That's a summary of the Christian life. Over and over in John's Gospel, we are told... If you love me, Jesus says, follow my commands. Obey my commands. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, whoever says, I know Christ, but is not doing what he says, is a liar. Do what he says. And unfortunately, too many church people spend too much time justifying why they're not obeying Jesus. This brings us to the rest of the story, verses 6 through 11. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's a translation into American measurements. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. wants no mistake what's going to occur here. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So it's interesting, the master of the banquet, who's sort of the quality taster, didn't even know where this came from. Then he called the bridegroom aside after tasting it, and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Obviously, everyone knows why, after drinking the best stuff then it's easier to serve the cheaper stuff. He said, but you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Usually the word disciples, we think of it as the 12 disciples, it often is. But the word is also used of those who were just following Jesus or were Curious about following Jesus. In fact, we're told in John chapter 6, we will see sometime down the road here, that it says many of his disciples did not believe in him. It's interesting. It means that those who were following him around, the crowds listening to him, are sometimes loosely referred to as disciples, followers, and some did not even believe. His disciples here though believed. Now, this is the first of seven signs. The first two are numbered, the rest aren't, so we're, there's a little disagreement at times. Which seven are they? They are generally miracles, but they're called signs in his gospel because they point to something besides themselves. They occur, all of them, in the first 12 chapters. And so sometimes New Testament scholars call the first 12 chapters the book of signs. And the whole purpose of these signs is that phrase to reveal his glory. And in the case of the water to wine, that glory has to do with his power. The power of Jesus to transform and the power of the new covenant and of the gospel to transform. Now, first, the power of Jesus is seen in the sheer amount of wine that is created. And virtually every commentary I checked versus pretty much every New Testament scholar I checked testified this is an enormous amount of wine especially for a smaller village. Uh, you have six stone jars, roughly 20 to 30 gallons apiece, filled right up to the brim. So somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 120 to 130, top, towards of 180 gallons of, of top-quality wine. And this is a massive amount of wine. And it leads to the question, obviously, why so much top-quality wine? Why so much wine? And the answer seems deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, wine is a sign of the blessing of God. And an abundance of wine often pointed to Messiah, Messianic age, and even the end times. Let me give you an example. So an abundance of wine often pointed to the culmination and into the Messianic age. For example, Amos 9. Prophet Amos is looking to the restoration of the Jews and the age of Messiah, and he writes this. So think of his words in light of that. As he's looking into the future, restoration of Israel, restoration of the Jews, age of Messiah, he writes, in that day, I will restore David's fallen tent and restore its ruins. So we're now in the, he's talking about the messianic age. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine, never again to be uprooted from their land. That's how we know we're in the end times. So the first display of the power of Christ here is in just the you know, the sheer amount, the quantity of wine. But secondly, the power of Jesus here is demonstrated in the quality of the wine. And that's, that's emphasized. Verse 10 is very clear. This is really good wine. <laughs> that's, this, is, this is quality wine. And then to add to that fact, we're told in verse 6 that the original purpose of the stone jars, that they were ceremonial stone jars used by the Jews for ceremonial washing for their worship. And I was surprised as I was doing my research. How many New Testament scholars mentioned that they believed the stone jars stood for the Jewish washings and were used, were, I mean, were emphasized, so to speak, to, to highlight or to differentiate the difference between Judaism and the New Covenant. In Judaism, you know, in other words, the old and the new, and used to emphasize that difference. R.C. Sproul says wine was an important element for the Passover meal, which points to Jesus and his gospel. And it was at the Last Supper that Jesus gave wine a new significance, symbolizes his life giving blood. So, let me put it this way, let me put it a different way. When Mary says they have no wine, a number of commentators said that's more than just a panicked statement, it probably is. Because she knows what's on the line, embarrassment and reputation. But it's more than just a panicked statement. It's actually a theological declaration. A statement about the passing of the old system. You have these stone jars, they're used for, and, and that's clearly emphasized, they're used for ceremonial washings. And so you have the old system, mosaic law, sacrifices, circumcision, that's good, but it's passing and it's now ushering in the Messianic age, which is symbolized by this superabundance of high-quality wine. The bottom line is that this first miracle, this first sign, is a reminder here's the key of the power of Jesus and the power of his gospel and the arrival of the new, of the new covenant. John is showing us Messiah has arrived. Messiah is completely different and has the power to transform the old into the new. That's the point. To transform, I mean on one level, water to wine, That's, but the, to transform, beyond that, to transform lives of sin and shame into lives of joy and lives of hope and lives of thanksgiving and lives of wholeness. The old has given way to the new. It becomes pretty clear as you look at this miracle, that's what's going on. Let me give you a classic example of this. Those of you who know Christ and have shared the gospel and have watched people be saved often see transformation almost metamorphosis in front of your eyes over time as someone's life is completely transformed we had a young couple come to us years ago in our church in Michigan and very normal situation their marriage was tanking they weren't doing well they wanted some counseling we met with them and their marriage was just in complete meltdown and as we talked it was very clear number 1 they were both quite hardened towards god But as we began to share the gospel and talk with them, we saw the the wife begin to soften towards the things of the Lord. And she ended up repenting and giving her life to Christ. And then we saw something we have seen so often over the years. We saw over time, over months and then several years, a complete transformation in this woman. Eventually, I even hired her on my staff there. And it's something that the gospel promises the old becomes new. That's why the Apostle Paul calls someone who has been converted and saved, what's he call him? A new creation. A new creation. Why? Because they have been radically transformed by the gospel. The old is gone and the new has arrived. Not perfection yet, but when someone meets Jesus, it becomes evident over time they are transformed. That brings us secondly to the priority of Jesus, and that is starting in verse 13 and following. I'm going to read 13 down through verse 17. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is a journey of about 60, 70 miles south. We've mentioned before, whenever you go to Jerusalem, it always mentions in the Gospels you go up to Jerusalem. That is true geographically, the elevation goes up, it's in the mountains. But also, theologically, you're going up. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of the cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said... Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Quote from Psalm 69. John's telling his friends, young people, there is a time for zeal and there's a time for not having zeal. A time when zeal can be wrong, but there's a time when it's very right. In one of the times, zeal is very right, is when it comes to worship. The situation in verses 13 and following is that Passover was coming, one of the biggest times of the year for the Jewish people. It's coming. It was a very important time in their life. And to understand the priority of Jesus here, you've got to know what he's upset at and what he's not upset at. So look at verse 14. It talks about men selling cattle, and sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. From everything we can tell, these were legitimate enterprises. Meaning, those coming to Passover, like Jesus, often coming from a long ways away, they need sacrificial animals, and it was a service to provide animals for sale near the temple. That was not viewed necessarily as wrong, and even the exchanging of currency had a lot of different coinage in the Roman Empire, And to pay your temple tax and buy the animals, you needed a certain coinage. So that's not necessarily wrong. The problem is where the selling and exchanging were taking place. Probably originally, it would have taken place around the Kidron Valley, which is really more of a big ravine between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. You have this huge ravine. And somewhere around, that probably is where the selling and exchanging took place. But over time it likely migrated closer and closer to the temple. A little bit like scalping football tickets or something. You know, the closer you can get to the door and everything, your your chances of selling stuff probably goes up. And so, naturally, this kind of evolution occurs and you have this this moving of the selling and exchanging. And the result of it all is this. It sort of turns the whole temple into a carnival-like atmosphere. And so, in other words, Jesus' complaint is not so much what the merchants are doing, there's no hint of that. It's where they're doing it. And it had turned the outer courts of the temple, which were the Gentile portion, into a kind of a circus and a carnival. Sounds of confession are now being drowned out by sounds of commerce. And that's not what worship is about, it's not what the temple was about. Worship was replaced suddenly with merchants haggling over prices and buying and selling and yelling and animals making noises. And what happens? The holiness, the gravitas of worship is downgraded. And what you have Jesus' anger here is that the downgrading, the marginalization of true worship. Worship was being distorted. It was being diminished. It was being downgraded. And it was being just basically dumbed down. One of my favorite authors, Kent Hughes, Written a number of good books, one on spiritual disciplines for men. He said this in his commentary on John. It's a, it's a very perceptive line, think of it, even in the context of what we're doing this morning. The way we worship reveals what we think about God. The way we worship, and he's talking about corporate worship. I mean, this applies also to our private times of worship. But he is speaking of corporate worship as Jesus is here. That's the context here. The way we do it is a theological statement. It says something about how you come to a worship service, how you dress, what time you arrive, how you approach the whole thing. It's a statement really about how you view God. This led uh, a well-known Puritan, very famous pastor, very popular pastor, Jeremiah Burroughs in England, several centuries ago, to preach a whole series of sermons from Leviticus 10 on the danger of false worship. Let me put a picture of the book up called Gospel Worship by Jeremiah Burroughs. R.C. Sproul, for example, I remember listening to a sermon years ago and he referenced this book and I had heard of Burroughs and I had read his rare jewel of Christian contentment, which is a treasure. I had not read this one. And R.C. Sproul said, as I was listening to this sermon on a podcast, he said, That book is one of the top five books that had impacted his life. So when I hear someone like a sprawl say that, I get the book. And I bought this. Now it's interesting, this book uh, is 14 sermons on Leviticus 10.3. Now you don't want to try that at home. (laughs) Uh, I've never had the courage to preach 14 sermons from Leviticus 10, let alone one verse. Having said that, They are 14 really good sermons and the whole point of it is this, it is all about the danger of worshiping the wrong way, of false worship and the importance of preparing for worship and the fear of God and preparing to hear the word and honoring the Sabbath day and honoring God in how we pray and preach and do the sacraments. And the sermons were eventually published into this book. And interestingly, as I mentioned, Sproul has had such a big impact on him. It also had a big impact on him in influencing him to write his classic, The Holiness of God. So if you've read The Holiness of God, I hope you have. If not, repent, go on Amazon and get it. Holiness, and we have it in our church library, several copies. As you read The Holiness of God, based heavily in Isaiah 6, but also rooted in these sermons, think about this sign and what Jesus is saying here. And the point of it is this, God is utterly holy and is far more fussy about worship and worshipers than we would care to think. And even though we know God does not dwell in a temple anymore, he is still to be approached in reverence and awe Especially when we hold public worship services because these are public. People walk in, some who don't know Christ, and they're watching. And what we're doing is telegraphing priorities to them. How we sing, what we sing. I'm so thankful for Pastor Doug and the care he takes to select music that's theologically rich and solid and biblically based. And when people gather for that weekly event, the question is, what is it displaying to the world? The last thing John shows us in this chapter, verses twenty-three to twenty-five, is a very common theme in the Gospels, and it's this: that many are eager to follow; few end up being committed followers. And we see that here, and we're here, where Jesus tells us why. So we have some very eagle—not eagle, e, e, not eagle, eager eager potential followers here, whom Jesus turns down flat. Now, how many preachers do that? How many of us do that? I mean, if a bunch of people come around, we want to count numbers and say, look at how many attended the event. And here you see Jesus, and this is not the only place, where he actually almost shoes people off. And so it's, the question is, why? So verses 23 to 25, there is a wordplay in the Greek, I'll show you that, and then a very important statement by Jesus about the human heart. So, verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many people saw the signs he was performing, and believed in his name. John keeps telling us that. Signs are performed. People believed. But, verse 24. Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind. For he knew what was in each person. I told you there's a word play. Look at verse 23. It says, many people Believed in his name. That's the verb used in the Greek. Many people believed in him. Verse 24, same Greek verb, but Jesus did not believe in them. Interesting. It's a word play in the Greek. Many believed in him, but he did not believe in them. Interesting. You say, well, why? Well, look at verse 25. Because he knew what was in each person. He knows what's in my heart. He knows what's in your heart. He knows that by nature, the human heart is hard and deceitful and dark and depraved. Even after conversion, we have a regular struggle with the selfishness of the heart. Thankfully, we're redeemed. We get new desires and new power to fight the life of holiness. But even then, it becomes a battle. And Jesus knows that. And he knew that unless God softens the heart and makes it receptive to the gospel, that person cannot believe. And we will see this emphasis in John as we go along on the Father drawing his elect and softening and opening their eyes to the gospel. All right, I want to close with two questions this morning. And these come out of these two powerful stories. Question number one. And I'm going to keep asking this all year as we go through this series, but phrase it differently each week. So, I think, especially from the emphasis in these signs, especially the first sign. Here's the question this morning: Have you been transformed by the gospel? Now, I'm not just asking, "Have you been saved?" I hope the answer is yes, but I know that there are some here who not. But if your instinctive answer is, "Yeah, of course I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I believe in God," that's how I'm asking. I'm asking, "Have you been genuinely converted?" The Puritans evangelized their congregations on purpose. They knew that every week, people sat out there sometimes for years and were unsaved. They believed the facts, but they had never surrendered to them. They never embraced them. And they certainly had not been transformed by the gospel. So, hence my question, especially coming out of the first sign this morning. Have you been transformed by the power of the gospel? The story of the water to wine is designed to showcase the difference, hear this, between religion and the gospel. Okay? Religion cannot save a human being, a sinner. Our only hope is to be transformed from the inside out by the power of the gospel. Again, that's why Paul calls somebody who's truly saved a new creation because everything's different. Doesn't mean they're perfect, but there's a new trajectory in their life. There's new desires, there's new abilities, new habits start forming. Because they are transformed. In other words, the gospel is more than just being forgiven. It is that. And it's not just a mere pardon of sins. The gospel is about spiritual rebirth. We're going to especially see that in chapter 3. Meaning, change from the inside out. Being indwelt by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And that is why, young people especially hear this. That is why John will emphasize Jesus' teaching, that the mark of the Christian is love. That will come out very strongly. Why? Because we're new creatures. And new creatures designed by God, mimic God, and they are love. They love. And Jesus is very clear Believers are known. The mark of a Christian, Francis Schaefer years ago wrote a small booklet on this The Mark of the Christian. Great little book. The mark of the genuine believer is there's love. Love exudes from them love for others that love them and love for their enemies. And Jesus clearly exuded that. Second question this morning, last question. If you do know Christ as Savior, and I know many of us here do, if you do know Christ as Savior, are you worshiping him with proper respect? This second story today screams this out. And again, it's not because God dwells in a building or dwells in a temple. It's about when we gather together, something public is occurring. And it begins, so my question, you know, are we doing this in proper respect? Now, obviously, this begins in our own private worship. It needs to be reverent. It needs to be heart engaged. But I'm talking about our weekly gathering. When we get together... Is it being done, are you coming and worshiping God in fear, fear of the Lord and proper respect? I taught one of our leaders this morning of an ABF and he said, I'm talking about the fear of the Lord today. And I said, great, as such an important part of our worship. So when we get together, whenever possible, are we doing it in a spirit of proper respect and honoring the Lord in our weekly gatherings? And not just you know, relying on something like live streaming. Now, let me say, I'm thankful for the technology of live streaming. Some are live streaming this morning. Becky and I watch live streaming, and we can't make it. And I'm thankful for it. There are seasons for it. If we're going through illness or a certain age, we can't get out anymore. There's seasons, or there's time for it. If we're not here geographically, we're, we're you know, we're traveling. But a couple of years ago, because of COVID, a phrase snuck into the evangelical discourse That is unknown more than, you know, a few years ago. And that phrase is this. Well, I attend online. Ten years ago, nobody would have any idea what you're talking about. You would have said, I watch perhaps online. But the Bible is clear. There is to be a priority of gathering together, if at all possible, and making it a regular priority. For the preaching of the word, the worship of the word, the fellowship of the word. And the Lord, the Lord calls his people to gather and make it a priority on each new Sabbath. And to exalt his name in the music, in the preaching, in the fellowship. And let me add one other thing. Parents, have kids at home. Don't ever forget. They're watching you and they know what you get excited about. They know. And the question is, are they seeing you excited about the local church? Are they seeing you excited about serving in the local church? Are they seeing you excited about corporate worship and the new Sabbath each day, each week? Our kids know that. And are they watching you give proper respect and reverence in public worship? I close with Psalm 29 verse 2. Great verse calling believers to this. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. That's a command. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. I can tell you that is the desires of our elders and staff, our lay volunteers. That is our heart's desire every week, that we foster that here. And that those who do walk in and who don't know the Lord will see that and know something is different Not just because of this building, but because of who's in the building and what is taking place here. Father God, coming off that verse, we want to ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. And yet, we know from Jesus' own statement about us, what's in the heart. The heart of those who aren't saved but even the heart of those who are saved. We can come here, Father, very selfish. We can sin against our loved ones on Sunday mornings. May you draw us in, help us to come in and to fear you in the right way biblically, to honor you and to make sure as we're singing, as we're listening to the preaching, that we're engaged and that we're honoring you and that those around us and our children who are sitting perhaps with us See that in us. We thank you for what Jesus did in these two signs. We ask that you would help us to see his glory as we go through this gospel. And Father, our prayer is at the end of this series, there would be many more who are true followers of Jesus and have been baptized than when the series began. And we pray this in his name. Amen.